You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. Before we get into our guest today, David, just wanted to remind you, uh, check us out on, on all the social media outlets under Millionaires Unveiled. And if you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. It's pretty cool. We've had quite a few of you reach out to us as listeners that we will be profiling here in the upcoming weeks. Also have several deals in the works in the multifamily space. If you're interested, shoot us an email and we'll get you some details on those. Today on the show, we've got David. David's net worth is about 1.5 to 1.6. Broken up between some equities, it's got an HSA, has some real estate as well. Getting into a lot of different strategies he's used over the years. David is an attorney, as is his wife. So without further ado, let's get right into the show. Welcome to Millionaires Unveiled. Today on the show, we've got David. David, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to and and uh, what you're doing for work and stuff? Uh, sure. Well, uh, me and my wife are both attorneys. We actually met in law school. She was a year ahead of me. Uh, so we both work as attorneys, but I always describe it as government attorneys as opposed to uh, big money attorneys. So we both work uh, for either local, state, federal government. Um, I have hopped around a little bit, mostly always criminal law, though. I've worked as a prosecutor. I've worked as a public defender. Um, and my wife works in labor law. So it's always uh, good, stable salaries, but not necessarily the money that people think they're talking about when you say that you're lawyers. Um, With that comes the enormous amount of law school debt because me and my wife were both, you know, raised pretty uh, standard blue collar. Um, So I just think we're good examples of, you know, live below your means, spend less money than you make. Uh, don't make stupid decisions and eventually you will accumulate uh, enough money to be, you know, interviewed on, on a show like this. Good stuff. And what, what's your net worth today? Uh, right. Uh, a little over 1.6 uh, when you subtract out. I still do have liabilities in the form of mortgages. Okay. So I carry a mortgage on the primary residence and a mortgage on a, a second home. And then other than that, we're out, we're done with student loans, we're done with home equity lines of credit. But, there, you know, whether or not you believe there's any good debt, to me, they're good debts just because they're, they're 30-year mortgages locked in at, I think, 325 and 35. Um, so that's, you know, remarkably low historically for mortgages. I don't mind carrying mortgages, especially because... I'm not in a hurry to pay off the primary residence because this is not the house I would retire to. It was always part of the master plan to sell this residence. The second home was the real sort of, you know, jewel in the crown of the budding little empire here because that's where we would plan on retiring to. Gotcha. And how are your assets broken down? Um, uh, Pretty even, actually, um, between, I would say... You know, real estate, which I really don't like including, you know, it always bothered me. One of the first things that I ever uh, paid attention to when it, when it comes to things like financial independence or, or early retirement was CNN's uh, m- um, Millionaire in the Making. 
I don't know if you recall that yeah. segment. I don't know why they stopped it. It was great. But it was the first time as a voyeur you could literally just look at somebody's uh, sheets, you know what I mean, and just sort of see how they're doing. Totally. But it always seemed to me, it always seemed to me slightly unfair that what was happening a lot of times is you'd have somebody with, you know, their home is in California or in Canada or something like that. And yeah, you're a millionaire, you have $800,000 worth of uh, equity in your home, you know what I mean? That's, that's to me, always seemed, uh, uh, I don't know, not, not the way I really wanted to uh, calculate uh, a true net worth. And then, of course, by the time that I got around to really running my own numbers, of course, I <laughs> use real estate. Um, but I don't mind including primary residence because, like I said, I expect that to turn into money that I would have the equity in that because I don't plan on living here in retirement. Um, and then I have, uh, you know, I'd say it's almost roughly in thirds, a third in equity um, and then a third in what I'd call traditional retirement vehicles. Um, the government does that TSP. That's what my wife has. I have uh, more traditionally 401ks and then I have 457bs because like I said, we're government workers and you know, well, something in a touch over 600,000 in those more traditional retirement vehicles and then a touch over 500,000 in let's call them less traditional like uh, dividend portfolios and or um, business equity or I actually, another thing I do is I actually count money that I currently have set aside for kids to go to college as an asset. I think that's the other thing that might be questionable. A lot of people don't consider that to be an asset, but until you spend it on your kids actually going in college, it is a pot of money that I think should be an assets. And it was always money that it was my intention to have to come up with in the future anyway, so that I have it now or have it earlier that it's actually um, accumulating uh, its money in its own right. I still think that that's fine to put it in the assets column. So. Good stuff. And how do you have all these uh, retirement accounts and, and traditional accounts invested or you're, you called it a dividend portfolio? How do you have those invested? Well, I would say um, in general, it, it's, it's, it's not consistent. In other words, my wife's retirement, I would definitely call that conservative. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, TSP, but the government has two very slow funds, uh, G fund and F fund that are uh, basically bond funds um, in government securities. You're lucky if that will be, that's going to be single digit increases uh, percentage wise in a year, but uh, things fall apart. Those areas won't take a hit. And then, you know, plenty that are just anything in the traditional retirement stuff that's in stock market is just in, uh, you know, S 500 indexes and uh, a lot of, say, let's call them Vanguard funds that everybody's sort of familiar with. A lot of the 457B that I have, um, actually, about half of that is in cash because I have an old job 457b where the cash account will still pay a little over three percent wow. which is a good you know cash is not going away and i never wanted to leave those three percents because you can't get that somewhere else so i would call the traditional retirement really pretty um safe let's call it um the dividend portfolios i i'm pretty disciplined in that in that I only hold stocks that actually pay a dividend. I shoot for about three and a half percent. They're not 
companies that I'm taking a chance on. I'd call them, you know, if not blue chips, then certainly stable companies that continue to pay dividends. And then that portfolio this year, I think, is first year will turn out a little over seven grand in dividends. I just keep that. That's almost for me is fun. I actually have that in individual stocks. So I like to watch the individual stocks. I like to plow money back into those portfolios. Um, and then I also keep a certain, I'm one of the guys that likes my precious metals. So it's a very low percentage overall. It's literally two or 3%, but I actually believe in holding actual precious metal. That's one of the things where the, those of us who like to do it are convinced that we should do it. And plenty of people out there think that is a big old waste of time. I guess it depends on where you sit. And about 75000 just in cash and various accounts. Call that the emergency fund and you know rainy day stuff. Gotcha. Does the precious metals that include Bitcoin by chance? Uh, no, I have <laughs> a lot than that. Just silver, gold, and then weird ones. I actually, you know, palladium and platinum. I'll just stick to those four. Okay. What are some of your favorite uh, dividend stocks? Um, well, I guess this is how I would say what I don't do is uh, chase around REITs and uh, things that pay in these, you know, double digit dividends. Of course, I have a couple of those. I think it's real easy to sort of get greedy and see that, um, you know, the real estate will pay you so much in dividends. But I'm careful to not have too much sitting in any one area. Um, but in general, I would say it's the tech stuff. Gotcha. Uh, you know, like your you know, Cisco, Microsoft, Oracle, things like that. But I don't, even a company I like, like say like a Tesla, it's not paying dividends yet, so I don't mess with it yet. That's part of me just trying to be disciplined. I buy something because I'm going to hold it long term. I'm going to sit on it for dividends. And that's the way that I don't risk money other than, you know, stock market has an inherent risk involved in it. But the dividend portfolio, I think, is pretty safe. How often do you readjust that portfolio? Well, it's not that so much. And, and the other thing, too, is I hold way more stocks than I imagine people think is, you know, smart or reasonable. I bet you there's 80 individual stocks in those two portfolios because I will hold somewhere between two and 7,000 in any one company, but not necessarily more than that. So the way that I handle rebalancing is I don't do automatic reinvestment. Okay. I let, I let the dividends build up in cash. And then every time I get a chunk of say three, 500 bucks, then I go back and pick an individual stock that I already hold that I want to go ahead and plow more money into. So instead of, you know, I can double down on what I consider to be winners instead of just dripping into stocks uh, automatically. So there's a little more of a human element to it. But I guess that is a version of rebalancing because I will pick which stocks will get more money in the future. And otherwise, I'm just sort of milking all the dividends, let it build up into a separate pile and then specifically focus it back into a particular stock. Do you invest the money in the college funds? Um, yes, although, you know, a lot of times I do two different things with the college money. One is, um, in my particular state, I'm not sure how many other states do it this way, but they do. I have a, a friend at work who told me a story a long time ago about, um, and it's called the Michigan Educational Trust, where you could buy uh, tuition at today's prices for future dates. Uh -huh. And so what this guy did is, you know, he said when my... 18 year old was two 
I bought tuition at University of Michigan at 1978 prices. You know what I mean? And by the time that she's 18 and using that, you better bet that was a great deal. Uh, so that, you know, un unfortunately for um, me, I have to go back a little bit, but it's something that you probably want to talk to anyways. My um, in-laws passed away in 2008 and it was unexpected and it was too early. They both had just turned 62. Wow. Um, but with that, and, and, you know, they were the kind of people who were also, you know, careful, lived below their means. They were all set to start enjoying retirement, all sort of set to start enjoying their grandbabies and, you know, life throws you a curveball. But one of the things that we were able to do because of that is, is, is look into these MET contracts, they call them, but I mean, it's prepaid tuition at yep. a set amount at some point. So my children basically have their tuition paid for by grandma and grandpa, you know, and only one of my kids even remembers them, but it's something that you get to say uh, later on in life that I think really sort of ties them back to uh, people that you wish that they had met. And then I do also have some money in a more traditional, um, more traditional saving for college funds with the, um, what, 527? You know what I'm talking about? 529? 529. Yeah. Too many numbers. Uh, where you just set it aggressive, moderate, or conservative. And, and I think when my kids were both younger, I just set it as aggressive. And I probably would regulate that back to moderate once they're, I don't know, five years out uh, from going to college. But I just, I, I do a lot of that. Even though my individual stock portfolios, I do all the hand picking. A lot of those other accounts, like the retirement accounts and stuff, I'll go ahead and just do the. Uh, you plan on retiring in 2025, let us rebalance the money for you. I don't see any problem with those uh, particular vehicles. They make sense to me. So, You know, one thing that uh, a lot of our listeners have asked recently is, do people invest their HSA accounts? And I know that you have one. Is that something that you invest? Yes. My, uh, my uh, employer allows us to do that. I think they like you to keep $2,000 free up in cash because that could be, you know, the boom, one emergency visit it and you're up to there. But anything over that, you are allowed to invest. I have it in a, uh, a Templeton dividend fund or Wellington dividend fund. It just all goes to there. So every time I build up, uh, say, uh, I, I pick the number arbitrarily. So every time I build up $500 that's over the 2000, I shift it over uh, to that. And the other thing is, I actually, I held off on the first year that my employer offered an HSA. I'm a numbers guy. I always sit there and run numbers and make little lists and uh, homemade Excel charts and stuff. And it looked like it made sense. I sat on, I sat out for a whole year to sort of wait and see how much everybody did or didn't like it um, and have totally come around on, on HSAs. I, I think uh, having that, my plan is I don't even, when I have a medical expense, I don't even take it out of the HSA. Yeah. I just save those receipts. I'm going to drag that war chest with me, especially all of those uh, that are interested in early retirement. It's really an interesting uh, uh, thing to get you through those gap years where you're not quite sure. You left your employer and you're not uh, qualifying for Medicare yet. It, that's when the HSA really comes into play. Um, and I expect to drag $50,000 with me uh, when I finally do quit working. So. Gotcha. I really did. But my HSA also pays me, you know, not only do I contribute up to the maximum, but, you know, my employer also contributes money. So it's like leaving money on the table. The worst year I can have is 
a year that I don't accumulate anything. And anything short of that, I'm making money. So, so have you have you been pretty intentional in in the balance of your assets between real estate and cash and investments and retirement accounts? Yes, I sort of, I, you know, I really do believe in that uh, diversify your assets. One thing that do, that you don't see uh, looking at the charts on this, you know, in particular blog, is I wish I actually had more in the way of rental properties or investment properties. That is always something that I have looked at. Um, but true to my nature, basically what I've been doing is lurking, running the numbers on things that pop up, but not quite ever pulling the trigger. And we're talking, you know, five years now. Um, it's one of those things I probably should just step off the cliff a bit because I know enough about it. I'm confident enough in the numbers that I'm running that it's not like I'm going to lose my shirt. It's just that really what it is, is me and a friend of mine who are constantly scheming over things like this over beers are both answerable to our wives. They trust us enough that they would let us do something. But that first one needs to go pretty smooth that there's ever going to be a second one. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, it's that hesitation that you just have to get it right the first time that has kept us basically just sort of circling for years now with these low interest rates with, you know, plenty of places around us where we could get into that game. So I, I may, it, it looks pretty even, but I definitely would have the intention of being a little heavily, you know, a, a skewed a little bit towards rental properties. It just hasn't quite worked out that way. I do do a VRBO with the second home and, you know, I've had good luck with that. I think that that works out well, but I wish I had other properties I was doing that with as well. Interesting. So how often do you rent that other property out? Um, as much as it'll get filled up. I mean, you know, there's a big difference. I, it's not like we do month to month. Um, so what we're, what we're really looking at there is people will do a week at a time in the summer months. And then I let it go to as, uh, as much turnover as a three night minimum all the rest of the times of the year. Um, and we'll fill up, call it three and a half months of uh, renters a year and VRBO is a really interesting system because as long as you have a cleaning service and a handyman on board um, you know the the website handles everything you're just sort of um, watching the money come in and answering the phone and or the email when someone complains they can't find a remote you know so I, I haven't had a bad experience yet what kind of mistakes have you made along the way well, you know, there's always the one about finding out a little bit late that you should have been paying attention to all this stuff. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't really complain about that too much because I, I come from a very sort of, <laughs> uh, I was going to say unsophisticated, but almost sort of feral upbringing. Um, for, for me, even knowing about this stuff at all is uh, I'm, I'm okay with the fact that it took me till you know, 35 to really start caring about what piles money was going into. Um, I sort of was always naturally frugal. So I, I don't have the kind of stories about spending money poorly. That was never my issue. Um, maxing out how well I was putting the money I did have. That is definitely something I could have squeezed out earlier, but I, I don't really have a lot of go-to answers for this other than um, law school is real expensive and 
in retrospect, I could have, you know, there's still tiers of law schools and then they cost different amounts of money to go to. Uh, what school you went to is really not that important. It's, it's, it's really more, that's how you get your foot in the, the door for your first job interview. At some point in time after a year or two, you're judged by how good of a lawyer you are, not where you went to law school. I could have picked a cheaper school. Um, they also had you real worried that you weren't supposed to work jobs while you were in law school because it's so hard you need to concentrate. That was odd for me. I had always worked jobs through school. I didn't have any undergraduate debt, not only because I was poor and got a lot of financial aid, but I also worked for three jobs all through undergrad. I kind of wish I had worked through law school. I kind of wish I had picked a cheaper, cheaper law school. Um, I built a home in 2005, which in retrospect was an expensive time to build a home, but I only built a home because I had sold a home and 2005 was also a great time to have sold a home. So that's kind of a wash. I don't really complain about that too much. Um, I, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't lose a lot of sleep at night. Uh, coulda, woulda, shoulda's about mistakes I made. I'm, I, I always have those stories. Of course I had Amazon at 17 and I had Apple at 23 and I made what I thought was a goodly amount of money and sold them. And then, you know, I think longingly about how I could have just held those stocks, but you know, you don't cry over spilt money. So what was your net worth around? You said you kind of got into personal finance and watching the money at 35. What was your net worth when you kind of got started around that age? I actually have it because even though I didn't know what I was doing, like I said, I still kept little lists of everything. And then when I finally decided to sort of go ahead and start uh, blogging about, you know, personal net worth and because I was enjoying looking at everybody else's stuff, I had 10 years worth of numbers. So the first net worth I ever had was 2006, about 10 years ago, uh, 75,000 bucks. I had assets of 509, but I had liabilities of 433. Wow. Yeah. So you've literally it, built this portfolio basically in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, from nothing to this in 10 years, but really there's not really some, uh, you know, win the lottery or something like that. It's, it's literally just sort of a steady buildup. And like I said, I was able to do things I would not have been able to do. Um, but for the, what happened in 2008 with the passing of my in-laws, because I don't worry about what I'm going to do for both of my kids' uh, college. And that is, a, you know, a giant weight lifted off your shoulder. Otherwise, that's one more thing you have to worry about and account for. And the other thing that that really sort of opened up for us is um, what I call the cottage, or I've referred to it before as the second home or the vacation home or the thing that we have on VRBO, is we really only had a third interest in that particular place and the other two relatives that we owned that with um, wanted to sell and it was on the market for years because it was 2008 and the first thing that was happening in 2008 is everybody was selling their toys and the things they didn't need when everything you know the economy fell apart that's the first thing to go is uh, a lake house you know what I mean but luckily for us, because everybody was trying to sell that and the economy was in bad shape, it didn't sell. It didn't sell for years. 
and we weren't in a position to make any kind of offer uh, until we were. And for us, that was the real coup is we were able to pivot um, the equity that we inherited in that cottage, take out a mortgage, pay off the other two relatives, and now it in fact it is ours. And that was always a dream that, you know, f for years and years we thought of, but we just did not see a way that that could possibly happen until it did happen. So, you know, for us, even though taking out a second mortgage that's as big as the mortgage we have on our primary residence, it was always a win-win for us because, well, by the numbers, it was a great deal uh, considering what they say it's worth versus the mortgage note we're holding on it. But for us, it's more important than that. We have, and even I married into this family, but I've been going up there for, you know, uh, 20 years. And my wife basically had, was grown up there since a child. It's now it'll be fourth generation and wow. it's secured. It's secured for my children. So, cool. you know, that, that, that that's something that we're really happy about. Yeah, you know? that's awesome. Have you ever used a financial advisor? Uh, yes, one time. And, and I see this a lot because I really think it is a true story um, that a lot of people in this niche find themselves is you kind of you kind of have this feeling you know what you're doing, but you, you, you kind of second guess yourself. So especially right around that time when we inherited some money, I said, look, instead of me just being a guy who reads a bunch of other people's websites and blogs and kind of thinks I know what I'm doing, let's just go ahead. We'll find the guy. Let's pay the guy and make sure I'm doing it right. And went in there and realized inside of eight minutes that I had basically on my own just sort of because it's an interest of mine and what was available on the Internet had at least was at least on par if not had surpassed this guy's grasp of what a financial advisor should be doing and you were also running into that sort of distasteful thing where they had certain funds that they wanted to drive you towards that i didn't like the numbers of i mean it, 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 it and it's just true anybody who's getting paid commission you have to sort of look at that side eye it doesn't it doesn't really make a lot of sense it makes sense if you don't know what you're doing but if you know what you're doing, to me, it was it was worth the whatever it was, $120 session or something like that. Because when I left there, I said, all right, I know what I'm doing. I don't need these people. We can just keep uh, letting me figure out what to do with the money. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of financial advice. I put it this way. If I won the lottery, you better bet I'd go get a financial advisor to take care of all that. I, I'd be scared all over again. But for... I think let's call it normal. Um, you know, you have an employer, you get retirement. What do you do with your funds? Uh, I think you can figure that out. There's enough information out there on the internet to get confident about what you're doing. Uh, so I've never been back. What What are your plans to kind of grow this wealth that you've accumulated already? Well, like I said, I I uh, there's certain things I'm more comfortable with than others. The uh, retirement, traditional retirement accounts, that, that's on automatic. At this point, uh, my wife contributes the most that they're going to let her. Um, I contribute. Uh, unfortunately, my employer is more like a, you give three and we'll give seven and you're stuck at 10, which is short of the maximums, but they won't allow me to even voluntarily give more money to that. But I can max out 457B, which is 
a nice option that government employees have. It's sort of a you know separate 401 with advantages over a 401. So I, I stuff all those accounts, and I would say I have those accounts basically on automatic. I think I'm around almost $72,000 a year that is just automatically either my money or employer's money being stashed away for retirement. So the ones that are really sort of in my control is I like the dividend portfolio of the, as far as a steady stream of dividends. We don't touch the principal. That's fully one third of my retirement plan. So when I get money, I stuff it in there. Um, I, I know which stocks I like. I'm not really looking for new stocks at this point. I just want to keep um, those year annual dividends going up and up and up. Right now it's about $500 a month. I'd like it to be $1,500 a month by the time we're done here. Uh, and then, like I said, I do, I do still think I want a rental property, although I'm not necessarily sure I want a rental property in retirement. And so the win there is, so there's a window there, but the window is starting to close unless it was near me, because I almost think that that's a, you know, the neat little uh, fuddy-duddy thing you can do in retirement is go check on the place and answer the calls. I wouldn't mind that, especially if you're talking, uh, you know, not too many units. But I don't want to do uh, long-distance landlording in retirement, I don't think. So, um, like I said, a lot, of, a lot of mine are traditional routes. Do you have a target mm -hmm. net worth that you want to hit? Uh, yes. Um, about 1.87. Hold on a second. I thought I was going to find it in a second, but I'm sure I will. I, th I think that's the number um, because the, the reality is, is I have my problem is not once I reach the traditional ages of retirement. If anything, it's almost uh, an embarrassment of wealth once the uh, pension checks and the Social Security checks and everything is rolling in at, at these advanced ages. It's almost you know too much money. I think of my master retirement plan. If I make it to say um, 62, it's like $14,000 a month coming in just in all the different retirements and stuff like that. The problem is uh, until I get to say 55, where I can start taking some of them, uh, that's like the minimum distribution age for some of the traditional retirement accounts. From whenever I leave till then, those gap years, I have to figure out how to cover that with just passive income. And so, um, I have run the numbers of what I would need to get a dividend portfolio to to get me uh, through those gap years. Um, and I mean, I'm on track for that. I'm on track for that with a retirement age of calling it um, 50, seven years from now. Good stuff. What advice would you give a 30 year old that's just getting started? Well, first of all, it's a lot easier if you're interested. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I tended to um, drift for whatever I was fixated on at any given time. But uh, if there's a good thing to be fixated on, you know, your, your finances is a, is a, is a pretty good topic. Um, but it, things are only mysterious to you because you don't know about them yet. And a real difference, especially even if you just go back 10 years, how much information was available on online compared to now with the whole community sprung up around the concept of fire. Uh, pick out some of these blogs and read through them. You will go from zero to 60. And, and once you have 
uh, a little confidence in that you understand what's going on. Then when you turn around and look at your own finance, it's a lot easier to whip your own house into shape. You know, it's a lot easier to get the broom out and just sort of tidy things up about just money that you, you, you didn't, you know, it, it, you, when you signed up for, you, when you got the new job, it's just sitting in a fund that's not the best option. You didn't know any better. Go look at that again. Now you know better. You know to move it over to something with a lower expense. Um, you can figure a lot of this out on your own. The other thing is to things, things you always hear um, that sooner you get started, the better off you are. Uh, the other thing is I don't know how you make yourself happy living below your means if that isn't natural to you. You know, if, if you're one of the people who feels like I feel like I'm having a good day or I'm having a good life because I have this very nice watch. I don't know what to tell that person because that was just never something I had to get over. I was just sort of naturally frugal. And so I think it's a lot easier for someone with that mindset than somebody else who has to do things like actually control their credit card spending because they think that that is somehow important. Um, I just think it's, you know, there's a lot of people in this country who are just headed in the wrong direction. This is not really how you're setting yourself up for the rest of your life. It's, it's a pro it's, you know, nobody wants to work forever. Um, and things with just spiraling credit card debt and student loan debt is not a way to go. Uh, fire is not for everybody, but there are certainly parts of it that should be implemented by everybody because they're universal good ideas. Ah, at 4% draw rate, I need about 175 in liquid assets. And the way I have that now is that currently liquid, I'm really am only at about 500,000. Uh, but when we're ready to retire, sell off the primary residence, that'll probably put us at 650. Um, we'll be able to withdraw, like I said, those 457B accounts have a real advantage over 401k in that there's no withdrawal. Uh, early withdrawal penalty once you sever uh, employment. So take that uh, 100000 out just based off of what I consider to be a pretty normal uh, rate of return and the future contributions at my current rate. Uh, I think that it, for us to hit 1.75 by you know 2024 is not a problem. And then that is just a, literally a passive income where the monthly dividends will carry us to the point where our uh, pensions and social security checks and things like that start coming in. So it, it's pretty much mapped out. We just need to have no uh, huge bumps in the road at this point. What's what's your savings rate <laughs> been on your path to becoming a millionaire? Um, well, as far as savings rate. Let me just say a little bit different is I'm a big fan of, and if, if you saw this going around uh, because Green Swan came up with it, so we all call it the Swan Fire Prowess number. But really what that is, is um, your, you get to the number by saying, what is the change in your net worth divided by your total gross income for that period of time? So in other words, it's slightly different in savings rate because it's not just how much you saved from how much you made, but it's how much your net worth went up, uh, the change in net worth divided by how much you made. And by that, which is the number I use, it's, I'm, I'm pretty good on that scale. I think I have a running 10-year uh, average of uh, 0.6. 
Wow. And then our little, the little scale we developed there is anything from 0.5 to 0.75 is, you know, early retirement's definitely possible. It's, you're doing it. Yeah. Um, so that's a, you know, I've had 2008 was 0.04, you know what I mean? Bad year for everybody, I think. And then I've had some years, um, you know, at a, at a 1.0 you know, 2014, but on average 0.6. And, and if you um, have seen that sort of swan fire prowess gauge number floating around that, that I'm pretty comfortable with that. That's a pretty good number for us. Like I said, I also lucked out in that my wife is kind of naturally the way I am. You know, she just is not concerned with uh, uh, some kind of, you know, handbag with a name on it or things like that. We, if we want something, we, you know, I, I also fight against the whole, I, I don't want to be cheap. My parents are very different. My father is just straight up cheap. My mother's just straight up materialistic. I, I try to keep <laughs> some sort of balance in between those two. So, I mean, I have no problem spending money on something that's worth it. I have no problem periodically spending money almost on purpose just to fight the fact that I'm, you know, not, uh, being cheap, but at the same time, uh, you lucked out in that I have a partner that's kind of not only a good earner, my, I'm one of those guys where, hey, my wife makes more money than me, and I am fine with that. That is all good <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But both of us just naturally live below our means, and it just allows for an accumulation that, you know, we're already past the point where this is about whether or not me and her can retire comfortably. I'm past that point. I'm already into just what I'm going to be able to establish for future generations. Um, that's a big thing for me. Cool. So that, that's really the direction that we're moving in now. We, we sort of did well enough to know that I'm not worried about my retirement or anyone needing anything from anybody or not having enough money to do the kind of things I want to do in retirement. I'm more thinking about now is how I can really make some generational wealth. Good stuff. All right, David, where can people find out about you? Uh, everything that we talked about and more is uh, infinitely available at my blog, which is ofalafihu.com. Weird word. I'll spell it for you. O-T-H-A-L-A-F-E-H-U.com. That's uh, my personal net worth blog, but it also bleeds over to other interests I have. Um, but there is a long history of hard numbers because it is an anonymous blog. So I am vulgar uh, with the actual numbers. So go check it out. Good stuff. With net worth of 1.6, almost 1.7, thanks for coming on the show today. Great. Thanks, thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.